Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Rock Harbor Church virtual church online. We're glad you joined us. We're still not able to meet, but uh, hopefully soon we will. And so be praying for us that the Lord will open some doors for us and that we can meet uh, together. And so uh, we're still in our series in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verses 23 through the rest of that chapter. And this is part two of our segment on getting our house in order. And again, this will be part two. So if you didn't see part one, go back and you can catch up on this. But what it is, is the setting is before Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh and does his task, God is wanting Moses to get his house in order. He spent 40 years in the desert. That has spiritually prepared him. Uh, It got Moses to the point where he could be usable in the hand of the Lord. But Moses still has a few housekeeping items that he needs to take care of. And the same is true for us. Anytime the Lord calls us to do something for him, he wants us to get our house in order before we venture out in ministry and do something for him. So you may have the call on your life, but that doesn't mean you just jump out and start doing it. It means that, first of all, you've got to evaluate yourself and what you're, what's happening with you and your family and to make sure your own house is in order. And so we looked at that last week. We're going to continue to look at it. And we're going to look at the main issue uh, that Moses didn't have in order. And it almost cost him his life or his son's life. And, and so um, we're going to look at that. We're going to parse it out. It's a very curious passage, but it's very serious. If Moses is going to deliver Israel and be used as a tool in the hands of God... He must have his own house in order. So if you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to Exodus chapter 4. We'll start in verse 22. I I said 23, but we're going to start in 22, kind of as a recap. And then we'll go from there and parse the verses out. So anyway, in verse 22, it says this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son uh, go that he may serve me. So that's the context in what we're, we're talking about. And this is the task that Moses is, is going to do with Pharaoh. But then he, God tells him, but if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And we want to talk a little bit about that. We stopped last week with verse 22 and 23, but I want to continue part two of 23 as we we go through this. So the message will be to Pharaoh that if you refuse to let Israel go, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn. Now he's already said that Israel is his firstborn, so let his firstborn come and worship him. But if he doesn't, he'll pay the price for his own firstborn to die. Now, what you see here is that the 10th plague uh, is mentioned here. And so... um, God is starting with the 10th plague to warn Pharaoh. And it indicates that God intends that all 10 plagues are to happen. And this is exactly where it will eventually lead. So that's why God uses the 10th plague. 
in talking to Moses. Anyway, what the plagues of Egypt show and what they're meant for is the inability of this pharaoh or this king who represents in a typology the Antichrist and Egypt represents the world system. It shows that all the false gods that are out there uh, and the forces of nature, that they cannot oppose the creator, Yahweh, the redeemer, Yahweh. So all the forces of the spiritual realm cannot do what Yahweh can do. That's the whole point. Rather, it is Yahweh and his agents, Moses and Aaron, who can overcome uh, in the spiritual struggle, in the spiritual fight that's going to happen here and demonstrate really who controls the forces of nature. And obviously God will. And that's why God wants to do and, and, and demonstrate his power through the ten plagues. And that's why he will strengthen Pharaoh's heart, not to give up, but to allow this to continue so that God can demonstrate his own power to the entire world. Anyway, it's a direct challenge to Pharaoh. It's a direct challenge to the, the forces of darkness that are directing Pharaoh's heart and, and controlling Pharaoh. So it's, it's God versus even the demonic realm in that sense as well. And so it's a one-two punch, really. It's an it's a opposing of the physical realm and an opposing of the spiritual realm to God, and God's going to overpower both realms to show that he is the one true God. Anyway, another thing I want to highlight as you look through this is that the theme of substitutionary atonement is found in this last plague, in the 10th plague. We'll talk more about that when we get to the 10th plague. But as it's mentioned here, I'll take your sons, what God's saying. So God, in effect, is saying that someone must die so that another can be liberated. So it's kind of a typology, and it pictures, eventually, the Messiah, the Son of God, would have to die in order for us to be liberated from sin and death. So that's when you, when you see this terminology, it's substitutionary atonement language. So anyway, there's another theme that's building all through this, is substitutionary atonement. Let's move now to verse 24. And it came to pass on the way, at the encampment, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Okay? Now, it's vague in who, it seem, who, it, who the Lord seeks to kill. By the context, and looking at the whole passage, what it seems to be is that the Lord seeks to kill Gershom or Eleazar. These are the two boys of Moses, okay? Um, and God basically was not going to allow Gershom or Eleazar to get to Egypt alive without a decisive change in their circumcision status. Now, this is a big deal because as Jews, the Abrahamic covenant was made to them. And if Moses is going to represent the God of the Abrahamic covenant, the God of the Hebrews, then the Abrahamic covenant demands that Moses circumcise his boy or boys. We know one of them at least is not circumcised properly. Otherwise, according to the Abrahamic covenant, the boy would be cut off and God doesn't want that not only for Gershom or Eleazar. So this is an act of mercy to get Moses' attention. And the idea is, Moses, if you're going to represent me and you're going to go there to represent the Abrahamic covenant, 
You can't have one of your kids not circumcised because the Abrahamic covenant requires Hebrew circumcision. And so Moses is negligent in this, and it is a big problem of not having his house in order. Like what you see in Genesis 17, God told Abraham this, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. So this is applies to every Jew, even till today. This is my covenant with you, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male, male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So that's what's at stake. Gershom or Eleazar are in violation of the Abrahamic covenant and seek to be cut off and physically have their lives taken away. This is how serious it is for the Jews to be circumcised um, for the Abrahamic covenant. Now, they also circumcised in the Mosaic covenant, but now that the Mosaic covenant has been rendered inoperative by Christ's death on the cross, we still have the Abrahamic covenant that requires every Jew to be circumcised properly. So the idea is Moses has failed to do his job as a Hebrew dad. And this needs to be rectified. It is a big deal. And so God is putting it on the line. So in verse 25, let's continue to see what happens, what transpires. Then Zephorah, that's Moses' wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son. Now, the sharp stone probably would have been a flint stone. That's what they use. It's kind of like glass. It becomes very sharp like a razor blade, and that's the kind of thing they would have used to circumcise. Well, anyway, it's Zephora that jumps in the middle of this and does the act. And if you recall, Zephora was a Midianite. And if you recall, the Midianites were offspring of Abraham and Keturah. Keturah was Abraham's second wife. All descendants of Abraham who follow Yahweh, who are part of the Abrahamic covenant and worship him, practice circumcision. So the Midianites practice circumcision. Jethro, if you remember, is a priest. And he's kind of like a priest like Melchizedek, right? He's a priest-king type of individual. Anyway, so they knew about the Abrahamic circumcision that was required, and so did Zephorah. That's why she jumps in the middle of this. Furthermore, many people groups of the ancient world practiced circumcision. They practiced it in different ways. The Midianites did it exactly the same way as the Jews did. And so Zephora knows exactly how he needs to be circumcised. So the question is, why did Moses not do this? Well, one theory is that Moses had only circumcised, circumcised Gershom uh, in an Egyptian way, or Eleazar in an Egyptian way, which involved Egyptian. Egyptians did circumcise um, their boys. However, the way they circumcised was only a small amount of the foreskin was cut. It was just split, basically, which obviously fell short of the Abrahamic circumcision. It was the entire foreskin had to be removed 
under Abrahamic covenant law. Well, anyway, Moses had probably had his boys partially circumcised the Egyptian way, and maybe he thinks this is okay. But obviously it's not. Even if he did that, it's not okay. So um, anyway, maybe perhaps this is why he thought the boys were okay. Maybe he just simply forgot. Maybe he neglected it. But it's a major neglect. This is something you don't forget. And, and so we have a hard time figuring out what Moses was thinking in this. So your guess is as good as mine. But at the end of the day, he didn't do something that was vital in his spiritual life, in his having his house in order. So Sipporah does the act that Moses should have done, and then she does something very curious, and most people don't understand. And it says in the scripture, and cast it, that's the foreskin that she cut off, at Moses' feet. Now, if you read that in English, you think, well, she, she cut Gershom or Eleazar's foreskin, she did the act, and she threw the foreskin at Moses' feet, where his sandals are. But that's not how to interpret this properly. This is what's called a Hebrew euphemism, okay? When, when you read the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and it says that something happened at the person's feet, it's not really their feet. That was a euphemism for genitals, okay? So, feet in the Hebrew is regalim. Uh, it's one of several euphemisms for genitals, okay? We use euphemisms for genitals even today, but that's how the Hebrews talked. They talked about their genitals as being their feet, okay? Let me give you a few, a, a few examples so you, you don't think I'm just making this up, okay? Deuteronomy 28.57, And toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs or Hebrew, regel, or regalim, feet. So, where does the afterbirth come from in a woman? From their feet? No. You know exactly it's from her genitals. That's what it's referring to in Deuteronomy 28. Look at Ezekiel 16, 25. You built yourself, this is God talking to Israel, a high place on the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs. It's referring to Israel. It's referring to Israel as a prostitute. Now, the word legs in Hebrew is feet. So the idea you spread your feet, or we would say spread your legs, to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. So I think you catch the drift here. He's telling Israel you're a prostitute, and you open your feet to anyone that passes by, or, or basically you spread your legs to anyone that passes by. It's a Hebrew euphemism. Okay. So if you recall, another instance, do you remember... When Ruth wants Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer, what does she do at night while he's sleeping? She goes over there and uncovers his feet. And most people misinterpret that. It is not his feet, his ten toes and ankles is she is uncovering. She is uncovering his genitals. Now, please understand, there's nothing sexual to this. There's, you know, it's not a sexual thing. By her uncovering his genitals, Boaz's genitals, she is asking him to redeem her and, and, and she wants to have his children uh, and, and he is the closest kinsman redeemer. So she is asking him basically to redeem her. So 
It's a cultural practice, so don't, don't read into it that there's something sexual going on, even though in our culture, to do that would be unthinkable, right? But in that culture, that's not, that's not how they thought. So she actually uncovers Boaz's gen- genitals and basically is in asking for it to be redeemed. So anyway, what's the point? Going back to Moses and Zephora. She takes, she takes the foreskin of either Eleazar or, or Gershom and casts it to Moses' genitals. Now, what is that? Well, again, this is where our Gentile minds stop, and then we have to think in terms of the Hebrew mindset. Okay, You have to go back into to 1400 BC and how the Jews thought back then and what they, how they did things symbolically. Okay. So by her doing that to Moses with the foreskin, it is a symbolic gesture that either Eleazar or Gershom had not been properly circumcised, whether it was Egyptian or none at all. And so now a legitimate spiritual transaction has occurred that Sephora did. And so Gershom and Eleazar are now legitimized and incorporated into the Abrahamic covenant by the act of their mother. But the touching of the foreskin or the casting of the foreskin to Moses' genitals indicates that Moses has neglected to do his duty and nearly, because of this neglect, got his own son killed because of his neglected duty. Moses should have done this himself, not Zipporah. Um, he should have been the one. He's the spiritual leader of the home, right? He should have done this and not, not allow his wife to do it or pick up the slack that he didn't make. And his duty was to adhere to the Abrahamic covenant prescription, which was circumcision. Okay? Obviously, the major consequence of not being circumcised was you're going to be cut off. And that's why she did this to symbolize that they're now legitimate. They won't die now because she did it right. And that by throwing it to Moses, it shows you that he didn't do his duty. But what she did, now follow me, was a symbolic act of substitution in which Zephora's obedience was received, was seen by God as replacing Moses's disobedience. So the idea is it's the, to transfer the effects of the rite of circumcision to him. Okay. Now you would understand this in salvation terms. Okay. So, so this is a very Hebrew concept of substitutionary. Okay. So the idea that when Messiah dies for us and he lived the perfect life you and I couldn't live, he becomes our substitute for our penalty, right? And then by his act, he then transfers his righteousness to us as if we didn't sin, okay? And so it's, an, it's, it's the act of substitution. Well, that's what's happening here. Her act is a substitution for Moses' inaction. And so she basically atoned for Moses' uh, failure is what she did and saved her boys, saved Moses' boys. So it's a good thing that she did this. Okay, so let's return to the text and it says this. And, sure, and she said, surely 
you are a husband of blood. Now, in the Hebrew, it's chatan damim. It doesn't mean husband of blood. It means blood relative to me. So she says, surely you are a blood relative to me. Now, most people mistranslate that and, and say husband, but that's not a proper translation. Hatan damim means relative of blood or blood relative. And, and this is the way to understand what Sephora, what Sephora was thinking and doing in the situation. It, if this was referring to Moses, her husband, the Hebrew word ish would have been used, but it wasn't. So when Sephora says this, she is using proper priestly language that she probably heard from her dad, Jethro, who was a priest, right? To say that the circumcision has been performed on her son Gershom or Eleazar in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant. And then when she says this, that you are a blood relative, she is saying this to her boys. So the reference to the boys being a blood relative has to do with her properly doing the circumcision. Look at verse 26. She continues to repeat the same phrase, and I'll parse it out even more. So he let him go. God did. He let the boy go, whether Gershom or Eleazar. Then she said, you are a husband. And again, it shouldn't be translated husband. It should be translated blood relative because of the circumcision. And she, she mentions it. You're now, you're now considered a blood relative because of the circumcision. You catch that language? Now, practically speaking, the boys are her boys and Moses' boys. So in essence, they are a blood relative, but she uses the phrase in connection to circumcision, which means that she's referring to something else. Okay? So what the expression means is, is not Zipporah getting angry with Moses and say, you're a bridegroom of blood and how most people translate that. That's not what it's saying. It's actually a term of endearment to Gershom or Eleazar, as both of the offspring of Moses have now become one flesh, it's a term actually of endearment to Gershom or to Eleazar, that yes, they are the offspring of Moses and Sephora, and their own flesh and blood have now been circumcised, and so they come under the Abrahamic covenant. And so that's what it means. It's connected to the circumcision and basically putting them under that covenant. That's the sign of the covenant, right? Okay. I know that's a lot. That's a, that's, you get into the Hebraic understanding, the Jewish idioms and whatnot. Okay, what's the takeaway, though, before we move on? What's the application for us? Well, it's really important to understand this. As you see Moses' house and his family was not in order to serve the Lord properly for the mission he gave him. Moses was heading to Egypt, and he didn't realize, or maybe he did, I don't know, that he still didn't have aspects of his life in order, especially in his family. And because he didn't take the spiritual leadership in his own family on this issue, his wife has to compensate for his lack of obedience in this area to conform to the requirements of the Abrahamic covenant and avoid punishment and getting the boys killed. This, what Moses did, risked the life of his two boys. And the same is true for us. 
if we don't have things right at home, if our family is not in order, it's going to be very difficult for you and I to carry out our mission for God. Let me show you what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. He told us to deacons, but it's, an, it's a principle you can apply to anyone going into ministry or doing something for the Lord. It says, one who rules this house well. He's talking about a deacon, but look at the overall principle. Having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And that's an excellent principle. Again, right actions show right beliefs. So something was wrong with Moses' belief about circumcision, and we don't know what, but his actions proved what he believed. Moses didn't take the right action, so something was wrong. Well, anyway, the same is true for us. Our actions prove what we believe. And if we do not have our house in order, we're mistaken about stepping out for God. Because if you think you can step out for God, if I think I can step out for God and do something for him, but my home is a disaster or my home's a wreck, I can't get my children under control, my spouse and I are continuing to fight, we have issues, um, you know, we cannot pretend to say we have it all together and then try to go out and do something for the Lord. I guarantee you, the minute you do that, Satan will attack that very thing. That very weakness that you have in your home life, that will be the very area that gets attacked. And so we will end up failing. And guys, I've seen so many people in ministry, so many people try to do something for the Lord. They went to seminary and boy, they get a, a job at a church. But guess what? They try to serve the Lord, but their home life will not allow them to serve properly and it destroys their ministry. And the same is true for anybody, not in vocational ministry, but just something that you want to do for the Lord. Please be very careful, careful in how you serve the Lord if things are not right at home. It'll trip you up. It'll be a disaster at the end. So that's a takeaway from Moses. Okay, another thing I want to bring out about this. This lack of circumcision that went on with the boy, no one would have knew. No one would have knew because it's something you can't see, circumcision, right? That's something between the person and God. And so this was a, what we call a secret sin or a hidden sin, okay? So Moses could have went in there and no Israelite would have picked up on this, not at all. But guess who knew? God did. And so the idea too in the same thing of serving the Lord, if there are secret sins that no one could possibly know about, but they're there and God knows about them, we have to deal with them before we step out and try to serve the Lord. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a neglected area of our life that no one sees, and yet the Lord's been pushing us to say, get this right, get this right, fix this, fix this in your private life, because it's eventually going to undermine you. That's the area we need to fix. So watch what God did. He stopped Moses in his tracks. And basically has said to Moses, you, you have neglected this private area of your life. And before I send you to Pharaoh, we need to remedy this before you go into Pharaoh's court. I will not have you serving me with some type of private sin that you carry with you when we're about to enter a spiritual conflict. And so 
God stopped him and made him address it. And unfortunately, it was pretty embarrassing that his wife had to do that. By the way, there's a lot of people who fail to do what they're supposed to do. They don't do what they're called to do. They don't take the spiritual leadership. And guess what? Their spouse or their wife ends up having to make up the ground and be the substitute of what their husband should have done. And it's embarrassing, I know, but so many times I see this where a husband knows to do the right thing, but he fails to do it, and then the wife has to jump in and take up the slack like Zipporah did. That should never happen. It happened with Moses, but it's a, it's a call to us not to do that. We are to take responsibility for ourselves and our family and be the spiritual leaders we need to be. So now let's go back to the text in verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And so what we want to take away from this is God is giving Moses a ministry partner. We talked about that last time in chapter 4, but now here comes Aaron. And this is God's grace and because Moses was you know, afraid. They're not going to pay attention to him. And so this is to help Moses. It's to give him a helper. And th this is a positive thing. It's not a negative thing because all of us in ministry need ministry partners. And that's why the Lord sent the disciples out in twos because they always need someone else. They don't go out alone. And it's not very good for us to go out alone either. We need people supporting us and helping us. So Aaron is that person for Moses. And of course, it makes the deal sweeter because that's Moses' brother. And anyway, that's going to be his ministry partner. That's a key to having our house in order, by the way, is that when we step out to do something for the Lord, we have key people supporting us and partnering us uh, with us in ministry. So, for example, if your spouse is not on board and you're trying to attempt ministry, that's, that's important to, to get him or her on board. If they're not on board, don't step out. Um, that will become a stumbling block for you. And again, this is all dealing with having your house in order. So it brings uh, Aaron to Moses. They meet up. And then in verse 28, it says this. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Notice that this is different than Moses' discussion with Jethro. He didn't tell anything to Jethro about his, his interactions with the Lord, but he tells Aaron. Why? Well, this is important to understand the ministry partners around us. Okay, This was the first time Moses is able to tell anyone about the burning bush. We don't even know if he told Zipporah. Okay? This is the first time in Scripture that we see him telling another person. Why is that? Well, because Aaron understood the call, because Aaron had been called as well. He had his encounter with God, too. And so that put him on the same page with Moses, the same wavelength, so to speak. And this is very important. When you serve God in the trenches and you're out there doing the Lord's work, you will notice that the only ones you really can talk to and share with and, and relate to and those who can relate to you are also the same ones in the trenches doing their job as well. And, and answering their call. Those who don't understand the call of God on your life, um, they're not in the trenches. They, they won't be able to relate. They'll, they'll say, okay, yeah, I understand what you're doing, but they don't know it. 
because they're not in the trenches themselves. And so you'll have a hard time relating to them. You'll explain things of what happened that day or, or, or you know, ministry hindrances or irritations, and they don't have a clue because you know why? They're not in the trenches fighting with you. The ones in the trenches understand. And so you can tell them your call and they totally get it. And that's why Moses could relate to Aaron and Aaron could relate to Moses because they both were called of God and they're both getting ready to go into the trenches. And so that's important to surround yourself with that kind of believer. That kind of believer gets you. They relate, they empathize, they understand, they get you. In fact, sometimes you don't have to say a word. You just have to roll your eyes and they totally pick up on what you're saying because they're in it too. They get it. And so that's important for Moses. That's important for us. And when you find these people that are in the trenches with you, they're like gold. They're like gold. They're rare, and they're, but man, they're priceless because they have went through the same junk you have went through. They have been attacked the same way you have been attacked. They have shed blood, so to speak. They have their knocks and bruises and scars from ministry. They get it. And those people you don't want to lose. You want to keep those people around you. And so it's very important that if you're doing whatever call that God has called you to do, surround yourself with that type of person. Don't be around Laodicean believers. Laodicean believers cannot help you, nor do they understand what you're trying to do. Because they're in a whole different ballpark, okay? So it's important in these next days, find those kinds of people. Anyway, back to verse 29. Back to the scriptures, it says this, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. I want you to notice something. Notice how God works. He works through authority structures. God wants people to accept and respect properly established authority. So here's what happens. God will work with the authority first. So the appeal and the evidence will be given first to the elders of Israel, okay? That's how it works. So their consent, not permission, God's not seeking permission, but by their consent, which they have to be willing for God to deliver them, okay, will be the key to moving forward and making a request to Pharaoh, okay? So again, this is part of getting our house in order. Understand the authority structure that is in front of you and work through the authority structure. Okay, that's very, very important. God establishes authority according to scripture. Therefore, you must work through it. Even the demons, fallen angels understand authority structures. When Michael told Satan to back down over Moses' body, remember that in Jude? And he says, the Lord rebuke you. Well, Satan had to back off at that point in time because Michael had called in a higher authority and that higher authority backed Satan off. So even the demonic realm understands authority and goes by it, by the way. Well, anyway, you can't put the cart before the horse. You can't go after Pharaoh if you don't have Israel on board. You have to have Israel on board and you have to do it through the elders. So before he runs directly to Pharaoh, we got to get permission, or not permission, consent by the Israelite elders. Okay, so I want you to think about this, because this is not only Jewish, but this is how the Bible designs life. And most of us Gentiles don't understand this. 
we, 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 we live in an era that most of the people are their own authority and they do it and come and go just as they please. But if you live in Bible times, authority was a major deal and still is, by the way, in the church. It still is. So to kind of understand this and why, why does he send Moses to get the consent of the elders? It's very important because I think you'll understand it in salvation terms, okay? In salvation, God offers salvation to us. He's the initiator of salvation. He, he did salvation through the death of the Messiah on the cross, and he offers it as a free gift, right? Well, in order to consent to taking that gift, you have to consent to it. I mean, you have to accept it. You have to receive it, right, as a free gift. You have to believe, so by believing, you're giving your consent to God that you accept his gift, right? So that's, that's what believing really is. I trust that Messiah did this for me. I'm trusting him for eternal life. Okay, so that's the idea of consent. It's not God asking for permission. It's God's offering something and say, do you want to be delivered, Israel? And they have to say yes, because the same offering will be given to Israel in the first century by the Messiah. He will offer the kingdom and offer deliverance, not only spiritually, but physically. But what will Israel do? They will reject his offer. And again, where did Messiah go? He went directly to the elders of Israel. Okay, And if you look at Matthew 12, that is the official stance of the elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and their judgment upon the Messiah and why they refuse to take the gift of the kingdom and salvation. They, they made up a story because they couldn't deny his miracles and said he does things by the power of Beelzebub and therefore they rejected their own Messiah. Okay, in the second coming... God will also work through the elders of Israel. It will be the elders of Israel that bring the nation to national salvation in, in, in accepting the Messiah. So God will again work through the elders. So it's always based on this authority structure. And what do the elders do uh, in the tribulation? Well, it's simple. If you read Hosea 6, uh, 1 through 6, it'll tell you. The elders of Israel will require the whole nation to repent and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then Jesus comes back to deliver them physically. So they first get delivered spiritually, and then they get delivered physically. And you will see the same pattern here in this text. So now it's an offering of salvation physically and spiritually. Okay, that's what Moses and Aaron are doing to the elders of Israel. Okay, So with that in mind, let's point out in our own application about this, in getting our house in order. Never, ever bypass authority, especially spiritual authority. When someone does that, it tells you that they don't respect or accept the authority of the person, but in effect... They're not accepting the authority structure that God has established. And I know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with authority. And again, I get it because a lot of people have been abused by authority earlier in their life, whether it's their parents or other authority figures. And so now they grow up and they're adults now and they don't respect authority. They don't like authority. They don't want to be told what to do. Okay, I get that. 
But if you continue to roll that way, you're going to get yourself in, in a hot mess. You're going to continue to buck God-given authority, and you will end up in a spiritual mess. Because, as you see, God is working with authority. When you're dealing with people at church, when you're dealing with people out in the community or whatever, work through the authority. I cannot tell you how much, how many things that will save you from, how many problems it'll save you from by just simply working through the authority and not bypassing it, okay? So let me return back to what we were talking about, the second coming, and about how Israel's leaders have to accept the Messiah and then lead the nation, according to Hosea 6, to salvation in Christ, in the Messiah, their Jewish Messiah. As of today, the Sanhedrin are back working now. Um, so that happened back in 2004. And interesting enough, they already have plans to build the Sanhedrin court, as you can see on these pictures. This is the blueprint for what they want to build. Now, the Sanhedrin has already convened, and they're ready to build their buildings, okay? And so when you see this, that means that you're looking at the leadership that will one day lead the Israelites to the Messiah. Now, again, you know, we don't know all of, if all of their leadership comes to faith, and we know that two-thirds of Israel uh, is, is, is uh, removed by the Antichrist in, um, physically in death, and one-third make it out. But however many leaders are left of that Sanhedrin, those will be the people who lead the nation to accepting Messiah as Lord and Savior. So it's very curious that we live in a time now where we're looking at the new authority structure has reconvened the Sanhedrin, the elders of Israel, and that's how close we are prophetically. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Let's return back to the text. Verse 30. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. And so basically, I want you to see the providence of God in this and how instrumental Aaron is. The Lord has helped Moses by bringing Aaron because Aaron's acting as kind of an intermediator uh, between Moses and Israel. Aaron was one who did speak for Moses and did two at least of the three signs that was given to Moses by God. But why? Why is Aaron serving in this uh, mediatorship between Israel and Moses? Well, you can see God's hand in this, his invisible hand. They don't know Moses. He's been gone for 40 years. He hasn't been around the Jews all this time. And, and to, to, to many of them, he's a complete stranger. Plus, if there is any elders that remember Moses from 40 years ago, guess what they remember? They remember he's a fugitive and he killed one of the Egyptians and he murdered somebody. So he, had, he would have no credibility to the elders of Israel. So Aaron provides instant credibility for Moses with the Jewish elders. And perhaps, we, based on this, we assume that Aaron is an elder. You know why? Because, number one, he left Egypt. How did he have the freedom to leave Egypt? How come he wasn't working? So it tells us that he was part of the elders, which he was past being required to work, and he had the freedom to leave and go into another part of the world and meet Moses. And so 
you can see the hand of God putting a ministry partner with Aaron that gives Moses access to the elders of Israel. By the way, the same thing is true in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. Most of the disciples were afraid of Paul. They knew Paul. There were some that, that may not have known him, but the main group knew Paul. They knew he had persecuted the church, and they were very much afraid of him. But yet he has this conversion, and he's brought before the apostles, and they don't know what, really what to do with him. They don't know if he's fake. They don't know what's going on. But guess who gives the apostle Paul credibility? It's Barnabas. Barnabas was an apostle, little a, and Barnabas vouches for Paul and introduces Paul to the apostles and gives him that credibility. So what was the reaction of the elders of Israel? It says in verse 31, so the people believed. Now notice this, it's not just the elders, it's the people of Israel believed. So it encompasses all of them. And so the elders must have believed, and then they went out and told the people of Israel, and they believed as well, along with the signs that, that Aaron provided, right? And so it's the whole nation in that sense. And, and when the scriptures, by the way, say someone believes, you take it on face value. They believed, and that generation believed. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have said that. Okay, so when you see those terms of scripture, you, you are to take that as, yes, they got saved. Now... Interesting enough, because most people will misinterpret that and say, well, they just believe to be physically delivered. No, no, they believe spiritually. That's why they're going to be physically delivered, is because they believe spiritually. That's the point. They're not going to be physically delivered if they're not spiritually delivered. And the same is true for Israel in the future. They have to be spiritually saved, and then they call on Messiah to save them physically. It's that order spiritual salvation, and then physical deliverance. And then the second coming is about the physical deliverance of, of Israel. And the same is true here. This is a typology for the future of Israel. They must be saved first spiritually, and then they will be delivered physically second. Now, this is important to understand because this group, as you know, will apostatize in the desert at Kadesh Barnea and refused to go into the promised land. So a lot of people say, well, they weren't saved and that's why they, they were allowed to die in a desert for, and, and that, that generation get wiped out um, because they refused to go in the land and it is, they wandered for 40 years and died there. That is simply a lack of temporal rewards for that generation. That generation believed. And as you see in Numbers, uh, Numbers 13 and 14. Um, that generation actually is forgiven by God. Uh, they repent the next day for not going in, and they ask Moses to go back in. But he says, it's too late. You missed your opportunity. And then they're stuck wandering in the desert as a penalty, a loss of temporal rewards for not trusting in God to deliver uh, the Canaanites into their hands. And so... This is not a lost generation. This is a saved generation, okay? But they simply apostatized and they paid an ultimate price in losing temporal rewards. So that's how to understand the book of Hebrews, by the way, because the book of Hebrews will use this generation 
as an example to believers not to apostatize because you'll lose temporal rewards and you can lose eternal rewards, but you don't lose your salvation. So the elders did exactly what God told Moses they would do. He said they would respond this way, and he gave Moses that assurance, right? And again, he, you know, Moses doubted, but now God has proven it. See, I told you, Moses, they would accept what I said. When I tell you they're going to do it, they'll do it. When I tell you Pharaoh won't accept it, believe me on this. So really, our application in a lot of this is this. Just simply do what we're told. If the Lord says, stand on our head and whistle Dixie, we just simply say, how long? We don't question it. We just say, okay, this is what you want me to do? And you just go out and do it. You don't question it because the Lord knows how people will react and he knows how things will play out. Our job is not to figure all things out and question things. It just simply is to, okay, I'll do it. And don't know how, how it's all going to play out. And that's okay. That's where your faith comes in. That's where my faith comes in. And that's all he's asking us to do. The problem that you and I have is that we become results-oriented. And I, I know how, that's how the world is. And, you know, if you're in, in business, you got to sell a certain amount of widgets and you have to do a certain amount of business. And I get that. And that's how we, our world is. We're very performance-oriented. But in the spiritual realm, that's a whole new ball game. You're not going to be able to count widgets. And so like Moses is results oriented and he asked the Lord back at the burning bush, what if they don't believe me? They won't believe me. He's basically saying, he goes, and basically he's saying the results won't be what you're telling me it's going to be. Moses thinks he knows how it will result and God has to correct him on that. And that's the game you cannot play. You cannot in any ministry that you're called to do get into results orientation. Now, again, what does that mean? If you're truly obedient and you're doing what God's called you to do, and like, like your following scripture says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's all God's asking you to do. He's saying, leave the results up to me. If you go out and evangelize, leave the results up to him. Don't be so concerned about how many you take into the harvest because as, as the apostle Paul said, you might be planting seeds, you might be watering, or you might be in harvest time. But nonetheless... You can't just have all harvests, and that can't be how you gauge your ministry is based on the numbers or the results that you're seeing. How do you measure obedience? How do you measure spiritual growth? Yes, you can see spiritual growth, but how do you quantify that? And so many people in ministry want to quantify spiritual growth, and you simply can't do it. Yes, you can see changes, but how do you quantify that? Well, he grew 10% this year. And next year, we're hoping for 15% growth. I mean, you, that's, it's ridiculous. But I'm telling you, that's how a lot of people get. And it discourages them, very much so. Because we're in an era now where you're going to not see good results. Most of the people are rejecting our message. We're in a post-Christian era. So if you're results-oriented, your results are going to be nil. It's not going to be... It's, if you're, you're basing your ministry off that... You're going to be discouraged, and that's not how you're supposed to do. All Moses needs to do, he doesn't need to worry about the results. It's just do what he's told to do. So let me give you an illustration for this to understand kind of where we're going on this. Numbers don't gauge how effective your ministry is, okay? So there was a lady, a Sunday school teacher by the name of Dorothy Mayberry, okay? She taught Sunday school for 40 years. I want you to think about this. The little kids. Okay? In her class, she never had more than probably 8 to 10 kids 
every, every year, okay? Eight to 10 kids in a little church that she was in. For 40 years, she did this. But over the years, people saw the impact of what she did to those kids that went through her classroom. I mean, many of them went on to be missionaries. Many of them went on to be pastors. When it's some type of vocational ministry, many of them became doctors, lawyers, CEOs. I mean, uh, you know, started their own businesses, very successful, okay? And so they found all the common denominator among all these people, and they asked them, who made the biggest impact on your life? And they all, to the number, said it was Dorothy Mayberry in Sunday school. Now, wait a second. As far as numbers are concerned, she only had about eight to 10 kids. In fact, she wasn't even in the biggest class. Most people went to other teachers and they were the biggest class, but she made the biggest impact. And it was only seen later on in what these other people chose in their life to do with the gifts and talents that God had given them. And by the way, that was the very thing she taught them. She taught them that, that they were responsible for the gifts God had given them and that they need to use those gifts for God's glory and, and serve the Lord and always seek to find his will in their life and what he wants them to do. And she put that embedded into their heart very early on in their age. And guess what? They all followed through with that. You tell me, how do you quantify that? You can't. Only God would be able to do something like that, which he will reward us at the beam of seat of Christ. And so the point here is, to get our house in order, don't worry about the results you're going to get. Just obey and do the best job you can for the Lord and leave the results up to Him. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.